Father God, I pray that you'll continue to open the eyes and the ears of our hearts, that we will hear the bits you want us to hear, and um, just let fall to the ground those bits that aren't for us. And we ask, Father, that you'll continue to change us from the inside out. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, I'm still on Romans 12, verse 2. I'm going to read it again from the message. It says, Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unless the culture around you is always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So this don't be so well-adjusted to your culture, you fit into it without even thinking. When someone asked Mark Twain what he thought about the difficult passages in the Bible he didn't understand, he replied he had trouble enough responding to the ones he did understand without worrying about the others. And, I mean, one of our ways of avoiding living as God wants is to focus on something we don't understand rather than the straightforward, like, don't be so well adjusted to your culture. But we do fit into our culture without really thinking. It's been said it's difficult for us to see some of the norms. Um, It's so difficult for us. It's a bit like fish um, wanting to recognise the impurities in the water. Okay, that's fine. You know, the fish is going up there. The fish can't recognise the um, impurities in the water. We very often can't recognise the norms in our culture that actually aren't biblical aren't Christ-like, aren't God. We don't recognise them. You know, most of us know about the, an- the anecdote of the putting the frog in the boiling water, don't we? Put the frog in the boiling water, it jumps out. Put it in cold water and slowly bring it to the boil, and apparently the frog doesn't recognise the temperature change and boils to death. And so we often don't recognise that temperature change, the change in culture goes unnoticed by us. But what does happen when we think about it? What are the areas we allow culture to shape us? Why are we so fearful of change? I think part of it is being frightened of being considered weird. Um, and we, don't, we like to fit in. We don't like being different. The most obvious way um, culture influences us, of course, is advertising. And if you think advertising doesn't influence you, you are deceiving yourself. They spend millions on it to make sure it does influence us. And what they try to do is to try to convince us that we're inadequate, or that we're less than, or that we're unlikely to succeed unless we purchase or do whatever it is. And we're seduced in areas of looks, good status, or that glamorous celebrity lifestyle. It's been said we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And that is so seriously true. Because with the people that we feel comfortable with, 
the people we know like us and we like them, we don't have to impress them. All those other people that we're not very keen on, but actually want them to like us. They're the ones that we end up um, buying things we don't um, to impress them. The less we accept ourselves, the more vulnerable we are to this um, assault on us. It's very difficult to feel comfortable in our own skins when we profoundly disapprove of our own skins or our body shape. And even when we manage to come against the negative impact of the world's influence on us, what about the culture of our church and friends? We all want to belong. We all want to fit in. We all want to be accepted. And these are legitimate desires. And yet we need to allow it to happen in godly ways. Brene Brown writes, Belonging is the innate human desire to be part of something larger than ourselves. Because this yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. Because true belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self-acceptance. Now, I'll unpack that a bit for you. If we don't accept ourselves in a healthy, holy way, other people's acceptance of us doesn't really work because we start to dis decide they're only being nice to us because they're Christians. They're only being nice to us because they've got to be. They wouldn't be nice to us if they were really truthful. Because when we're not nice to ourselves and we don't accept ourselves, that's how we view other people. We view them with suspicion. We don't, and then we try to be what we think they want us to be. We pretend. We pretend we're something we're not in order to gain approval, to fit in. And even if that works, we're still dissatisfied and often insecure because what if they find out what we're really like? Or, of course, we then go to the other extreme, determined not to be controlled by what others think. We decide not to care what anyone else thinks. This problem, if we don't care at all what people think, we are immune to hurt, um, but we're also very ineffective in belonging. Godly ways of connecting and fitting involves the courage to be honest about our failures honest about our vulnerabilities and our sins. I'll come back to that in a minute. And so we have to learn to be ourselves. We're not who we were. We're not who we're going to be. We are work in progress. We're not saying, well, this is what I'm like, waltz and all, and I'm never going to change. That is ridiculous. But we are saying, I'm not going to pretend. And so there's certain very easy things we can do to not fit into our culture. One of them is we can decide we're not going to moan, complain, or gossip. Now, um, particularly in London, um, we moan about transport, don't we? 
is probably rates second in our subjects of national complaining. The NHS is number one. Um, number two is um, transport. <laughs> now, a friend of mine who's a great Christian, she's wonderful, she was standing at the bus stop with two other women who were moaning about how long they'd been waiting for the 38, number 38 bus. And Jean said, oh, well, they normally run to time, and as the timetable here is explaining, they're 30 minutes apart at midday. And they looked at her, turned away, and carried on moaning to each other. Because we like moaning. And when we decide not to fit in, it can bring a level of exclusion to it. Um, some people like gossiping. My mother loved gossip, good gossip. She used to be furious with me because I wouldn't join in. She took it as a personal rejection, you know, that I would not join in this gossiping. Um, Philippian, no, so Philemon 2, verse 14, in the message says, do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Now, gossiping is often avoidance of true intimacy. It's easier to talk about others than ourselves. It's easier to discuss another person's issues, failures, shortcomings with someone else, because then we can build ourselves up, diminish and judge the other person, and avoid the actual conflict. We'd rather talk about the person than go and resolve the issue. Or we gossip about someone, or we... As some people, it's a, it's a gossip as well as a seduction, like, um, or have you heard... And you go, no, and they say, well, I probably shouldn't say anything. But Now, if you're immune to gossip, which I am because I grew up in a gossipy family, so it doesn't, truly doesn't interest me, I go, well, you better not tell me. Well, that normally makes people cross because they've really got every intention of telling you after we've gone through the, perhaps I should, perhaps I shouldn't. Um, but there are ways we can be set apart. We can choose not to moan, not to complain, not to gossip. And I think a church very often can be quite a moaning, gossipy, complaining place. I'm sure yours isn't, but some can be. And I think one of these reasons, I've been asking God about it, is because we can live a very small, diminished, barricaded view of what being a Christian is. And where church and church life can become the center of our world rather than Jesus. And I think it's subtle. But the picture I had of this was of a small pond where the fish in this small pond had grown so large that they kept bumping into one another. And as we know, overcrowding physically or emotionally causes aggression. And gossip can be a disguised form of aggression. And so we have to learn to challenge or at very least refuse to join in these sins but know that we risk disapproval. And we struggle, because we want others to like us, and we want to like ourselves. Now, Joyce Meyer says that everything is to do with motives, and we need to have a pure heart and do things for the right reasons. Um, she suggests that doing things for the wrong reasons is just an attempt to buy love and to buy approval. And she says, anything we do for the wrong reason is a waste of time. 
However, Father Damascus, who's an early church father, jokingly, but I think with a great deal of seriousness, said, don't worry about purifying your motives. Simply know they are not, aren't pure and proceed. And my view is somewhere in the two, between the two. I'm often a mixture. And I have to ask God to forgive me, to heal me. Um, but if I waited until I had a totally pure heart and totally pure motives, I think I might wait forever. You know, I'd be stuck in that place of, I've got to be good enough before God can use me. So I have to put my trust in God, continually die to the needs of other people's approval, learn not to be shaped by what others think, but at the same time remain connected to them, remain loving them. It's very difficult. It's a difficult road. We either want to shut everyone out, which is my default position. I don't need this. I don't need you. Thank you very much. Close down. Or the other position is, you know, do you like me? And doing things to earn approval. We need to want to stay connected, be open, be authentic. But at the same time, not bending, not try to impress one of the things we need to ask ourselves, for instance, if we're doing something kind, would I do this for everyone or just you because I want to impress you? Do we really treat everyone the same? Or are we wanting to earn some people's approval? Or are we frightened of some people and we don't want to upset them? You know, we walk on eggshells around them. Simple things. Yeah, would you get everyone a coffee or do you just look out for one person? Do you save a seat for anyone or everyone or just your best friend? All sorts of things. But they're the things that make us different. And if we're going to be culturally all that God's called us to be, which is what this is about, not being dragged down to a level of immaturity, we have to stop comparing ourselves. We're so used to comparing ourselves, we don't even know it's wrong. We're so used to being compared to brothers or sisters. It's common in lots of families. You know, it's very easily expressed, isn't it? Like, oh, you're not like, you're just not like your brother. I don't know what to make of you. I can't understand um, why you're like this. No one else in the family is. I was compared to my Auntie Flo. wasn't too sure what Auntie Flo was like, but I knew it wasn't a good idea to be compared to her. <laughs> we can compare ourselves to others and think they're more super spiritual than us, and we disqualify ourselves. Or we can compare our husbands and our marriages. We often think other people have it easier. It's not as difficult for them. And we can struggle with a divided heart over our motives, trying to keep husband or powerful one, whoever that is in our families, happy, Christian or not, and how we perceive the people in the church want us to be, or how we want to keep that person happy and Jesus. And we have this divided heart, this divided loyalty. 
And so we learn how to gain acceptance. Jesus never compared the disciples. He never said to Peter, why can't you be a bit more reflective like John? He never said to John, a bit more spontaneous action like Peter wouldn't come and miss here. He never did it. When Martha forces Jesus to consider the difference between the two sisters, he merely says, Mary has chosen what is better at this time. We have done all this stuff about Mary and Martha. It's not in, it's not in there. You know, oh, Martha's this, Mary's that. And we've divided people up into Martha people and Mary people. It's not, it's, it's, not, it's not in scripture if you read it. At this time, Mary's made the better choice. Not all you're a less than person, Martha, because you're not like Mary. the end of John's <coughs> gospel, Jesus indicates the kind of death by which Peter's going to glorify God. What's Peter's response? It's fascinating. Peter says, what about John? What's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me. And of course, that's what God says to each one of us. What's that to you? You follow me. And so we're not to compare and we're not to pretend. We're not to put on that Christian persona, the fig leaf. You know, we can do it so quickly. We can all learn the jargon. We can all attend the right meetings. We can all uh, wear the clothes that are acceptable in whatever church we belong to. We can become an enhanced CV, a touched-up photograph. We can do it on the outside. It's not, it's not difficult. You know, Christians share instead of talk to one another. Well, that's an easy word to change, isn't it? Stop talking, start sharing. Only Christians do that. Um, all those sort of words and all of that. Um, we have to stop doing it. The first recorded sin in the New Testament church involved people pretending to be something they were not. Acts 5, it's Ananias and, Ananias and Sapphira. They pretend to be generous. They wanted to be admired. They wanted to fit in. They could have kept the field, given half, whatever. But we are like that. We fear being shamed. We fear being rejected. We don't like to admit our weaknesses or our failures, and so we do a cover-up job. And of course, whenever we do that, we are de defended, barricaded against the healing power of the Christian community. If we send in our pretend person, we are not going to be touched, are we? We need to learn to be vulnerable, truthful, transparent. We need to choose not to hide. We need to know and be known by God. You know, if you go to the doctor, you don't go, you know, let's say you go to the doctor with a bad knee. You don't go and sit down, do you, and say, my hearing's brilliant. 
and I'm really pleased with my breathing and my lungs. And I think my liver and kidneys are working okay. We don't do that, do we? We go in and say we've got a bad knee. But the amount of times where we present all the good bits of ourselves that actually don't need praying for and hide the bit that we do need prayer for. Uh, my husband and I had, I have a group on a Monday afternoon. I've been meeting this group for, oh, I don't know, 25 years, something like that. It's a women's group. It's a drop-in place. Um, it's fantastic. I love it. Anyway, Ron and I had this um, rail one Sunday afternoon, and it was really crossover. I can't remember what it's about anymore, but he said to me, and I dare say you're going to tell all those women tomorrow afternoon about this, aren't you? And I went, too right. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> but actually, as we calmed down, we decided that that was a good way to live. Now, that isn't to say I tell everyone about the lovely treasures, intimacies of my marriage. I don't, because they're treasures, intimacies of my marriage. But we have chosen to live without hiding things we're struggling with. We have chosen to live and not to, not to, because we've done a deal on it. It's not a betrayal. It's not dishonest. We are both choosing to be transparent and live real and be honest. That way the enemy has no power over our marriage. The saint can't come along and whisper to us, because our answer is, yeah, well, God knows about it, because we've prayed about it, and our mates do as well. So what are you going to whisper to me? Likewise, the very um, first group I belonged to, um, there were four of us, and we were met together not for healing, but we had to ask God to teach us how to hear him. And Sheila was part of the group. Um, so you can see we've all been around together for a long time, which is lovely if you can manage that. Um, and we used to praise God, and we didn't worship with music very often, but we would praise God and thank God and wait for his presence to come. And when his presence came, and we didn't have a formula, we didn't think now we confess our sins, but the presence of God caused us to be real. And so we'd say to God, not particularly to each other, but out loud, oh, dear God, please forgive me when I got um, Ron to tell my mum I was out last night when I wasn't, but I didn't want to talk to her. I'm really sorry about making him lie. Or um, please forgive me when I bought two pair of shoes and hid one in the wardrobe and only showed him one pair because we haven't got any money. <laughs> That was quite a continual one of mine. <laughs> Sheila says she can't remember the shoes. She can remember the curtains. Apparently there was a curtain thing that went on for ages. <laughs> but it was really real. And it's amazingly good because, you know, at the end of two years, it was the most healing experience of my life. Not because anyone prayed for my healing, but because three other women really knew me, really knew me and still loved me. 
And real belonging is about that. And anything less than that never satisfies. And that's how we naturally become set apart. Because we're naturally different from people who are hiding and struggling and trying to keep a show on the road or wallpaper over the cracks or whatever you want to call it. Being set apart is about that not hiding. Do you know, and in the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, they hid, put fig leaves on themselves, hid from each other, hid from God. He knew they'd sinned because they were hiding. You know, and in Mark 11, 20 and 21, it says, In the morning, as they went along, the disciples and Jesus saw that the fig tree, which he'd cursed the day before, had withered from the roots. And Peter, remembering this, says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, generally, this is understood to be an acted-out parable. Um, Jesus had been to the temple. He was in Jerusalem. Um, and it's often understood, and I think correctly, to be um, about Israel. It's a metaphor for Israel and those people claiming to be God's people who don't bear fruit for him. That's generally, if you look it up, that's what the Bible notes say. However, I've often wondered whether it's also symbolic, like the tearing of the temple veil, the temple veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, split in two, at Christ's death, symbolizing that the barrier between God and his people has been removed. That's what that's about. And maybe the cursing of the fig tree symbolizes the end of our separation and our hiding from God and others and ourselves. We don't need to wear fig leaves. We don't need to have that enhanced CV of ourselves. We don't need to strive, impress, seek approval. All we need to do is find some safe people in our connect groups or whatever where we can practice being authentic and transparent. And one of the main things we need to do is to kill off the person we think we ought to be. The super Christian, the superstar. Because that is a tyranny that stops us being all that God's called us to be. So those of you who know you've got any fig leaves on of any type, any hiding you're doing, or any wanting to be something or someone different from yourself, you stand up, I'm going to pray for you. Okay, now just with the eyes of your heart, if you can see a sort of an enhanced pretend you or if you know you've got a fig leaf on covering up a different part of yourself just with the eyes of your heart we're going to now a different way of praying it's like an acting out parable we can use our hands or our um, bodies like a prayer so those of you who know you've got fig leaves on I want you to just Take the fig leaf off with your hand, wherever you can see it, on your head, 
over your heart, over your stomach, wherever it is. Take it off and put it on the cross of Jesus or give it into God's hands, whatever you want to do. If you've got a whole false self that you need to kill off, just take that off and stamp on it. It's illusory anyway, it only needs a stamp. Okay, so I'm going to pray for you and you're going to act this out and you're going to be brave and I'll break the power of the shame over you first. <laughs> Father God, I pray now that you'll come to these, your women, and where part of their hiding is shame, I pray you'll unwrap them from the shame of what they're hiding. Unwrap them from the shame of what they're hiding from. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that each one of your daughters here is in a safe place. Thank you for their courage and standing. Now, just with the eyes of your heart, see whether it's a false persona you've got to kill off or whether it's a fig leaf that you need to take off. And you're going to have to do this. We cannot do it for you because this is your choice. Just strengthen wills now, Lord. Strengthen wills. Now use your hands, use your bodies, you're going to do it, just when you're ready. That's it. So take your hand and take it off. That's it. Go on. You're there. That's it. That's it. As someone who's got a fig leaf over their heads, and it's that you find that if you really said, well done, if you really said what was on your mind, you fear that you'd be disapproved of. Just take that fig leaf off your head. That's, that's you, yes, that's right. Thank you. That, that, that's it. Lord's really on you. I can see you've taken that fig leaf off your head. You've got a lot of fear there. Just let the fear come up. Now, who's struggling to get the fig leaf off because it's grown inside them a little bit? It's not just on the outside. It's become part of your... DNA, anyone? You all all right? Okay. Okay. Father God, I pray that where that is part of your daughter's DNA as well as just on her, I pray that you'll cleanse her from the inside out. Cleanse her where this um, fig leaf has grown into under her skin. Thank you, Lord. Break the power again of all the shame on your daughter's life. Release her from the shame. Now, once you know that fig leaf's off, receive the next bit of prayer, okay? Don't receive it, though. We don't want the fig leaf covered up. Father God, thank you that you come with our robes of righteousness. And thank you that our robes of righteousness cover our nakedness whilst being amazingly transparent. We thank you for that heavenly um, material that we have never seen here but I know covers us whilst dancing like rainbows, like being transparent. And Father, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We pray for your robes of righteousness to come. Now, once you've got your robes of righteousness on and you know they're on, you can sit down. You can tell the people around you you're okay. But don't... Sit down just because you're worried about the time or using up other people's time. Wait until you've got those fig leaves off. You okay? 
Wonderful. So let's go back to this, how do we live in our ordinary lives? Now, my, my ordinary is I live in the suburbs. I live in Woodford Green, Essex. I've never moved more than five miles from where I was born, from where I went to school, where I got married, and where I had my children. When my children went to school, I knew some of the mums, or I knew their brothers. And I loved that, and I love that. I love community. We walk across the green to our local church. We're very fortunate. It's ordinary. And yet, of course, nothing is ordinary. Nothing's ordinary. Leaves changing colours. We've got a pond at the bottom of our garden and the sun dances on it and it's more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing's ordinary. And when we need, learn to look with the eyes and the ears of our heart, we have nudges of insight. And it's a gift, it's a discipline and it's a knack. We've got a clear, clear, clear I can't say the word, plastic I've settled for, Ch um, chair in our bathroom, acrylic, Ch um, chair in our bathroom, clear. When the sun shines through the window, it reflects a rainbow on, on the chair. Nothing's ordinary. My bathroom chair's not ordinary if I know how to look at it. It's not what you look at, it's what you see. All can be transformed. God tells us not to despise small beginnings. We have so denigrated the word ordinary, we think it means boring, mundane, meaningless. But that's because we're blind to God in our lives. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, the most uninteresting person you talk to, one day may be a creature which if you saw him now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. That's the Christ within us, that's our potential. And so we need to know that nothing's ordinary and we need to learn to practice um, the word for it is theophanies which means seeing God in our everyday ordinary, nudges of insight, moments of revelation. You know, people, um, when we look at art, most great artists don't want to explain the painting. They want us to see it as they would wish. We need to understand the deeper realities. And so we need to just enjoy God's... Theophanies. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple of examples. I was sitting around a swimming pool um, this time last year, actually. We'd just done a conference in America and gone off for a few days' holiday, which was lovely. And I was watching this really elderly couple, and the man was photographing his wife. They were in their late 80s, maybe even early 90s, and the man was really shrunken with age. You know how you get sort of... He'd really got very small with age, whilst his wife had grown large and was wearing this voluminous um, caftan. And as I watched, I'm looking at them, I heard the husband say, just move nearer to the tree. The light will make you look even more beautiful. I know. 
that's God showing me something of his faithfulness. That's God showing me that love sees beauty that's not always obvious to others. That love enhances beauty. Love tra transforms. And because I'm learning this for myself, um, I watched it, had these thoughts, I scribbled it down in the back of the book I was reading. I'm practicing theophanies. On another occasion, I was watching um, a refugee immigrant family crossing the pedestrian crossing. And the reason I was looking at it was the man and the woman and the elder son um, looked sort of older than I imagined their years to be, really. They looked tired, worn out, beaten down by life. And then symbolically, the man was sort of bent over with the struggles of living. But out in front, there was their little girl. She was three at the most. She had a very funny hat on, which is what I noticed her. Weird hat. Um, and she's marching forward. She's walking across the protest ahead of them, marching forward. Her arms are swinging. She's not yet wounded. She's full of friendly anticipation. Smiling, she's full of joy. She's saying yes to what lay ahead. And I'm, so I'm sitting there in the car looking and I thought, yeah, that's God's intention for us. That we embrace life. That we bless God as we say yes to him and his world. That we're not defined by the struggles or the wounding. But we remain like that little three-year-old out in front, funny hat on or not, saying yes. Again, quoting C.S. Lewis, he says, any patch of sunlight in a wood will show you something about the sun which you could never get from reading books or astronomy. The, these pure and spontaneous pleasures are patches of God-light in the woods of our experience. That's what we look for. That's how we're set apart. We need to be able to see new images where God speaks to us of the mystery and potential of transforming love in our ordinary, everyday experiences of life. We bless him by saying yes. There's an old um, Jewish story which says that when we get to heaven, the first question God will ask us is, and did you enjoy the world I gave you to live in? Do you enjoy the world I gave you to live in? Enjoy, receive with gratitude the life God's prepared for us. And as we do that, we can just, with the Christ within, the hope of glory, we just transform our community. Um... Romans 12, verse 8, in the message says, Keep a smile on your face. Now, my neighbour, Jean, had made a commitment to Jesus, but she was really struggling, and she was working in her father-in-law's greengrocers. Another friend of mine, Jill Thompson, shopped there and would always smile and be pleasant and be cheerful. Jean didn't know that Jill's husband was disabled and they had five children living at home and they were Christians. In a subsequent conversation, when Jean realised that I knew Jill, 
I said, she said, how do you know Jill then? So I said, oh, she goes to the same church as me. She's Christian. She said something like, I knew. I knew she was different. God had used Jill as another God person in Jean's life on her way to becoming all that God wanted her to be. She smiled when she brought her fruit and veg. She was cheerful and pleasant. In Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Help needy Christians be inventive in your hospitality. Another friend in my Monday group called Pauline, um, she's married to a businessman. They're often in New York on business trips. And the first two mornings she was saying, when she was last there, she had breakfast alone in the hotel. And across the road she saw a tramp um, rummaging in the garbage bin. So the following morning um, she went out before he went to the garbage bin and bought a McDonald's and put it in the garbage tin. And so she continued to do this throughout her stay getting the enjoyment of watching this man find his um, McDonald's every morning in the garbage tin. Audience of one. Simple. Simple. Audience of one. Transforming the ordinary. And sometimes we just need to be a little bit brave. I'm going to finish on this one before I pray. Um, this autumn, Ron, my husband and I have been on one of those clipper boats. Do you see the adverts from them? They've got all the sails on them and they go around Venice or along the Croatian coast. Really lovely. Anyway, on this clipper boat and in the evenings when you go down to eat, you sit on any table. So you sit with different people, different evenings. So the second evening, we're sitting on this table and this lady, who turned out her name was Ruth, sort of left the table um, because she had a text come in, went outside and then came back and sort of said to everyone on the table, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry I did that, but, you know, it's very difficult um, at home. My mum's got Alzheimer's and um, this was on the Monday. My dad's trying to get her into a home this Wednesday and now he's so distressed he's thinking of going in the home with her and I don't know whether I should fly home. So everyone said, oh, how awful. And then other people told stories about their elderly parents and different things. Anyway, so at the end of the evening, I was talking to her, and I just said, if you like, I said, I won't do it here, but if you like, when I go back to my cabin, I will pray for your mum and dad. Um, what would you like? So she said, I'd like them to be how they were when I was a little girl. I said, well, that's not going to happen. So what else would you like? So she said, <laughs> she said, Oh, I suppose I want my dad to make the right decision for my mum. So I said, oh, that's good. Would you like me to pray that when I get back to the cabin? And she said, oh, yes, please. She said, I do know what you're talking about. She said, I'm not a believer at the moment for all sorts of reasons, but my dad was an evangelical vicar, so I do know what you're talking about. All you have to do... What was the worst that could have happened to me? Someone had looked at me and said, well, I've never had anyone say no to me praying for them. I don't always offer to do it to them there. I can see that's too much for a lot of people. 
I'm sure there's people around who can do that. I can't. But I can offer to pray. And I've actually never had anyone say no to me. They don't necessarily believe. I'm not asking them to. I'm just saying I'll do that for you if you'd like. And all of you need to find your comfortable ways. And I do mean comfortable ways. I know there's lots of things about getting out of our comfort zone that are helpful and good. But, you know, it's a bit like everything else, like promising to pray for two hours a day when you're not even managing five minutes. It's best to start with the five minutes and work up. So try and find the ways whereby you feel comfortable in being that set-apart, transforming person in your neighbourhood. Okay, let's stand and I'm going to pray for us all. Father God, I pray you'll help us to recognize the impurities in our culture which would cause us to settle for less than you've called us to be. Thank you, Father God, that the person you've called us to be is bigger than the person that we are now. Thank you that the person you've called us to be is more than we have become at this moment. Thank you that we are all becoming, growing, changing people. And I pray now, Father God, you'll send your Holy Spirit to set up alarm bells in our heads when we seek to fit in without really being honest and authentic. Give us the courage to love you and your ways over and above our desire to be popular and our wish to impress others. Help us to follow you in our everyday ordinary. Show us what will sustain us, inspire us and fill us with beauty. and increase our sensitivities to your promptings. Father, help us to cooperate with your desire to bring out the best in us. And help us to be secure enough to desire and bring out the best in others. And help us, Father God, to grow up before we grow old. Thank you, Father. Just going to read a poem over you. Earthbound, earthbound, cries the flesh. Concentrate on me. Feed me, clothe me, all good things. That's what I want today. Comfort, pleasure, ease of life will satisfy me. 
Earthbound, earthbound cries the mind, concentrate on me. Logic, education, poetry and prose. That's what I want today. Good books, conversation and music will satisfy me. Earthbound, earthbound cries the emotions, concentrate on me. Happiness, well-being, tranquility. That's what I want today. Self-awareness, realisation and serendipity will satisfy me. Heavenward, heavenward, cries the spirit. Concentrate on him. Lose your life, pick up your cross. That's what he says today. His life within you flowing out like an everlasting stream will satisfy beyond compare. Submit the rest to him. Thank you, Father. Amen.